Christians are a peculiar people. To the world around us, we often appear as strange or weird, like we really don't fit in. The phrase the Apostle Peter used to describe us was elect exiles. The idea is that even though we are chosen and precious to God, in a world that's corrupted by sin, we will feel like strangers or sojourners. As the song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. So Christians are called to live like foreigners and exiles while still pursuing relationships with the people around us who are not like us. And Peter's first letter is written to help saints, young and old, to figure out how to do that, how to live in the world while not becoming like the world, while also seeking to win the world back to God. The following episode is one of nine where we dove into this letter with fellow saints and seekers here in Brooklyn to try and figure out how do we share the gospel with our neighbors around us when the gospel feels like it's mostly unwelcome. Hope you benefit from listening. Peace and love, everybody. All right, guys, um, let's start out um, as we have the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, What do you guys see in the reading today that struck you or impressed you or troubled you or um, or maybe uh, discouraged you or encouraged you as you're reading First uh, Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one down through chapter three and verse seven. What jumped out at you or impressed you from the reading? I have a really random comment, Caleb. Sure. Uh, I feel like I've read or like had these verses in class like many times before and I never really picked out the end of verse six that says if you like talking about Sarah and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening that's just a really weird thing to say um like what is frightening I don't know there's a lot of just things that I never really picked up on and or I had never really thought about that last piece of that verse um so what it's kind of a random place to start but i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that i'm not sure if i do either um but uh it is certainly an interesting phrase there at the end of verse uh six so uh and we'll probably come to that at some point here in in the study thanks for sharing um what else jumped out at you mike and candace go ahead um, I just noticed how um, chapter three, verse one starts with likewise, right? Which tells me that it's connecting Jesus's suffering to, I guess, wives potentially, wives with, um, with unbelieving husbands who may potentially have to suffer maybe as a result of their of their husband's behavior, I guess, is kind of what I'm seeing. They're just, I I don't know, this is probably the first time I noticed that chapter three, verse one was connected with uh, Jesus's suffering. All right, that's big. Uh, What you're pointing out there is big. This is very intimately connected with Jesus suffering. Chapters three, verses one to seven is very intimately connected um, to verses 21 through 25. I would argue, too, it goes back even further to that. I think the likewise there is just like servants are to be in subjection to their masters, and just like all Christians are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, in the same way wives are to be in subjection to their husbands. So all of this, going way back to uh, 
chapter two, at least chapter two in verse, uh, in verse 12, I would argue is pretty closely connected. Um, the implications of that are pretty important too. Ruth, go ahead. Yeah, I guess um, there is a tendency or a temptation for wives who are, who are faithful wives in Christ to think themselves to be enlightened or superior to an unbelieving husband. But it shows you that God's design for marriage, it has nothing to do with that, but it's just what it is. And so it's not contingent on whether you should submit to your husband or not. Very good. Very good. Good observations. All right, other yep. observations from verse 21 down through chapter 3 and verse 7. That was a really good um, connection there with the likewise in chapter 3. And then because it reminds me, like you said, of, of uh, verse 12, the idea of um, a wife, um, because of her conduct, she's going to win over the unbelieving husband who may make her suffer in a sense. And just like that, um, we keep our our behavior among the Gentiles honorable so that when they try to revile us, they can't in, in, in the day of visitation, they glorify God because of our, our behavior. So it's like the husband coming to the wife and realizing her behavior is, is godly um, that our behavior or Christ's behavior um, of, of not like reviling for being reviled. People come to see his or people come to see our um, non revenge behavior as being uh godly yep you're on to something there brian we're coming right back to that uh Brittany and then tony sorry i had a question about that specifically uh with the the admonition not to be yoked together with a non-believer is this more of a uh a you know commandment piece of advice whatever that would be more applicable in a time when you're going from there is no there are no Christians because there is no Christianity to some people convert. And then that can be people who are already married versus now where it's pretty well known that Christianity is a thing and that you would have that choice before you entered into marriage. Right. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think I think many of the early Christians you would imagine um, were married before they became Christians. Therefore, um, when, a, when a wife then becomes a Christian, she's in a tricky spot, um, not, only because of, uh, not only because of the fact that she's now a Christian, but also because of the fact that most husbands would not be okay with their wife taking on um, a different religion than them. And it actually across, there was plenty of uh, writings, ancient writings around the time of Jesus uh, that would speak about how women shouldn't have friends except for their husband's friends. And they shouldn't worship any other gods, but their husband's God. So there's a lot of tricky situations that women would be in when they are now coming to faith in such a situation. And I would argue too, Adam, while it is true, if you grew up in hearing the gospel, you, would, you, would under, you should understand, you sh certainly should understand that, hey, if I'm a Christian, it doesn't make sense to marry somebody who has nothing in common with me that matters in the end. That being, we don't have to share the same faith. It's still, though, true that even today, there are many people who are converted to Christ after they get married. Therefore, they find themselves again in that tricky position of how do I stay faithful to the Lord while also trying to be faithful to my spouse? Um, so I think that's what he's dealing with. Does that answer your question, Adam? Yes. Yeah, good. Good. Thanks for bringing that up. Tony, go ahead. 
Yeah, I wanted to, you know, as I was going through this earlier today, I was purposed to only speak on uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Um, I think we go through chapter 3, 1 through 6 a lot, and we kind of skip over verse 7. You know, we kind of bury it into the ground with, with what the women should be doing, but then when it comes to the husband part, we kind of skip it. Um, but Denise and I were talking about this, too, just before she had to leave for work. Uh, well, she's here still, but she's getting ready for work. Um and the hard question is, like, what about, like, how far, to what extent should a wife submit to her husband? And given the, you know, one, we're, we're comparing, the, the likewise there is comparing to Christ, who was, you know, submit himself to worldly authorities, entrusting himself to God to the point where he was beat and killed on a cross. Right. Um, you know, how far does that go for a, a, a wife of a husband who is abusive? Great question. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's probably one of the harder questions to answer here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, being it does say even with, with that, that verse 6 in, in chapter 3, where it talks about not to fear anything that is fearful or fearsome or whatever, um, however your, your Bible puts it. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, mine says just doing good without fear. Um, so that, I guess for me, that's, that's the question. Like, to what extent are we talking about submission here? Um, and, I, and I'll get into verse seven later when we get to verse seven. <laughs> yeah, great question. Thank you for raising that. We're coming right back to that in just a moment. Um, all right. So before we go to verses one to seven, I just want to review. This may be a review. It may not be a review for you, but I want to, I want to notice real quickly. I want to ask you again, look at verses 21 through 26, 25 of chapter two. And, and, and what, it, let me just ask you this question. What is the goal or the goals, plural, of Jesus' suffering. According to Peter in verses 21 to 25, what were the goals of Jesus' suffering? Why did Jesus go through all of this suffering? I think there's more than one answer to that question, yeah, but I think that, that answering that question is pretty critical to helping us understand uh, the role of wives and husbands in a, in a marriage relationship as well. So what do you see in verses 21 to 25? How would you answer that question? What is the goal of Jesus' suffering? Yeah, Mike and Candace. Yeah, Caleb, I would say that the main goal is to provide an example for us because God knows that regardless of what we may go through in this life, nothing can compare to what Christ experienced on the cross. Yeah. So that situation is there to say that yeah, we as human beings living in this world, we have no excuse to give up or despair, regardless of how distressing a situation may be to us, because we have Christ, the son of the living God, as an example, who went through just such torture and agony for us. Very good. Uh, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, which think about the implications of that. Uh, we'll come back to that again in a moment. All right, what else do you see here, uh, Brian and then Tony? Um, I, I think uh, it shows us an example of trusting in God as, if we're suffering um, because it's uh, as opposed to re thinking of revenge. But I think ultimately the, like the goal is um, – he bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
So again, the idea is that we, we die to sin, we die to revenge, we, but we live to righteousness. We live to looking to the Father. We live to um, not repaying evil for evil. I do not think um, that means that a wife in, a, in an abusive situation uh, has to s- submit to abuse. Uh, yeah, save that. We're coming back to that in a moment, Brian. Um, but, but, but finish your thought about Jesus here. Um, the thought is that um, he gives us the, I don't know how to put it, but like just the most excellent example of like how to spiritually, um, if we have to sustain something, we look to the Lord. Um, and it re- reminds me of where we say to be punished for something good is better than to be punished for something bad that we've done. And um, that's what got Christ through it. And he gives us the strength to do the same, um, to look towards righteousness and not to evil. Okay, good. So maybe to say that another way, the the goal of Jesus' suffering was to transform us. That is to take us from being dead in sin um, and make us die to sin so that we might now live to righteousness. Um, Good. Good. Tony, what were you going to share? They both said the same th- two things I was thinking. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Uh, thanks for thinking that, and thanks for sharing. Um, I, I was thinking here, too, um, the goal of Jesus' suffering uh, was to heal us. Um, did you see that in verse uh, 24? Four. By his wounds, you have been healed. Um, And then lastly, verse 25, the goal of Jesus' suffering was to return us or to help us to return to the shepherd and guardian or overseer of our souls, Um, which which reminded me again of, do you remember the verse we began with last week, chapter 2 and verse 12, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And here's what I, here's what I want us to think about here. We stressed this a little bit last week. I want to stress it one more time. Jesus is inviting us as his disciples to come and participate in his story, in his life. If you remember this, Jesus went about doing good works, good deeds all the time. And yet, even though he only did what was good, and even though you could summarize his life as Peter did in Acts 10, um, that he went about doing good and healing all those in need, um, even though Jesus kept, did good works and, his, and kept his conduct good among the nations, still a lot of people spoke against him and considered him an evildoer and said all kinds of mean and evil things about him and did all kinds of evil things to him. Um, and yet... Why did Jesus do all that? Well, he went through it because he knew that through that suffering, in the end, some of those people would come to glorify God by looking at his example. And we are all living proof for that. So coming back to where Michael began, what is Jesus, what is Jesus' goal in all that? Well, he's, his goal was to, to bring about our salvation and our transformation. But his goal was also to help us be transformed so that we might live in the same way to bring about that same transformation and salvation for others. So do you see that? Just like Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his footsteps, we also suffer, not for us, we suffer for others. 
that through our suffering, we might shine the light of Christ. We might do good deeds and, and, and we might continue to do what's right. And in so doing, others might see our good works and they might eventually come to glorify God. Now, we've seen that already. When he gave us instructions about how to submit to the government, the goal of all of that was, was that we might, through the way we, the way we act in public and in society, we might lead others to come to glorify God and to know God. And when he talked about servants and their relationships with their masters, all the instructions that he gave to servants about their subjection towards their masters was meant to, was meant to lead them to an opportunity to show their masters the goodness of God and lead them to glorify God. And now again, we come to the relationship of wives to husbands, and we're going to see the same goal, the same uh, calling here. So Jesus' story is our story. Jesus' life, Jesus, the life that Jesus lived is the life that we are living. Just like Jesus came down from heaven and subjected himself to, to all kinds of people who, who didn't, were not worthy of him subjecting himself to. Even just as Jesus went through all that and continued to do good when he was mistreated and reviled and threatened so that he might bring about salvation of some, we too live the same kind of life. That's true in public, that's true on, in the workplace, and that's true in the home, which is where we're headed in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7. All right, before we get into 1 to 7 um, and talk about wives and husbands here, is there anything else you guys want to say about that, connecting this with Jesus and his example? Anything else you want to you want to mention about how this helps us or inspires us to, uh, to live a life of subjection. All right, let's get to the part then that everybody wants to talk about um, the role of wives. Um, I don't think I have to tell you this is uh, hard for us to swallow. Some of what's said here in chapter three, verses one to six um, and I think it's wise, as Tony said, uh, to if you're a male, maybe this is the time I, I considered banning all males from speaking on uh, verses one to six and, and, and only letting women speak on that. Um, I, you might think that's a, that's a stupid idea, but actually you, you should recall that in the book of Titus, Paul specifically instructs Titus to teach the older women to, um, among other things, train the younger women um, to love their husbands and to be subject to them. So actually, um, husbands, it is not your job to, make your, to put your wife into submission, nor is it your job to uh, tell your wife that she needs to submit or to try to force her or, or facilitate in some way, you know, uh, put her in some sort of position where she's forced to submit to you. Uh, actually, in the church, it's the older women who are charged with the role of teaching younger women to love their husbands and to submit to their husbands. Um, but what do you guys see? And especially, especially, I'd like to hear from you sisters. What do you see about the calling that God gives to wives here in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6? What, uh, what stands out to you in the reading here about what the wives are called to do? Uh, and it's not just subjection here, but we need to talk about subjection and what that looks like. But what do you see in verses one to six um, that either puzzles you or troubles you or um, teaches you something about what God wants from wives? Yeah, Candace. So I don't think it's a, I guess when, when you go back and connect it to, um, 
to verse 22 in chapter 2 like you did, like 2021 20, come forward, it, it pretty much is, is running a parallel with Christ, right? We're, wives are called to be submissive to their husbands as Christ was submissive um, and died on the cross. You know, we have to have chaste conduct, just like when he was reviled, he didn't revile. That's what we have to do. It says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. And, you know, I don't know why, but that makes me think of Isaiah 53 when it talks about, like, um, the fact that Jesus wasn't beautiful to look at. Right. <laughs> you know, special you know, about his appearance. There was nothing special about his appearance, right? But it was his conduct that, that, that kind of was focused on, right? The fact that, that you know he was he was suffering and he wasn't reacting and so I, I don't know I feel like in my head when I start paralleling it with Christ then because of what Christ did for me I would naturally want to act like Christ does so does my husband really have to tell me hey you need to submit if I am walking around saying you know what I want to act like like Christ act now that doesn't mean again I think in our society, when we use the word submit and subjection, people always take it as, oh, you know, somebody's beating up on you and you don't say anything, right? And I don't think that's, that's what it is. I think it's just realizing, like, I think we talked about this last week, either here in First Peter or in Romans, just realizing that it's going to be that, you know, you're in one position and somebody else is in another position and you need to, I don't know, be lower than that person. And that's what Christ intentionally did for us. So I think if we keep connecting chapter three, verse one to six with what Christ did for us, it's not going to feel dogmatic, I guess. And I don't know if I'm using the right, if I'm bringing across the right idea here. I think that's super, super helpful. Thanks for sharing, Candice. Um, a lot of good connections there uh, with Jesus and, and with wives. Uh, Ruth, go ahead. Notice um, it says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. So that's it out to me. And this this tendency of like, even growing up, um, my mom was a believer, my, my dad. I mean, yeah, I don't know what he was. But, um, you know, constantly always nagging him about whether, you know, he should go to church or not. Or, you know, there's this tendency for women, from some examples that I've seen, um, in those situations to kind of, you know, weaponize the gospel and just kind of, you know, talk down to their husbands that they ought to serve God, they're, you know, rebellious and all these different things when their conduct is the thing that God is calling them to do as a witness to their husband. Yeah, that's really good. That reminded me too, one of the things that was most impressive to me about the Jesus story one of the things that most converted my heart to Jesus was that part about him being on trial and when he was reviled and attacked and that people were saying all kinds of lies and all kinds of false things about him. What was his response? He won us without a word. He didn't even, he didn't even try to defend himself. And that spirit of humility and that spirit of entrusting himself to God is actually what uh, what won a lot of us, won our hearts back to God and, and impressed us about Jesus. And basically he says, hey, wives, there are going to be times where uh, your husband is disobedient to the word. And, uh, and that's how you're going to win them back. It's not going to be through your preaching. It's going to be through your godly conduct, your holy conduct. 
um, and, and the way that you treat your husband, even when he may be hard to treat in a healthy and good way. Good points, good points. Other thoughts um, about the role of wives here? Uh, Sister Joy. Yeah, um, I agree with all that I've heard so far, but I... I think we lost you, Sister Joy. Sorry, let me move. My baby is... I also see the, the church as um, the wife as a portrayal of the church, and I see the beauty of the submissive wife as the church submitting herself to Christ, and we, we win people to Christ through our purity, through our sincerity, and um, our good lives towards Christ, you know? Our gentleness and our kindness will help to win not just the husband, but as the church, as the church expressed that pureness and that gentleness and that kindness and, and remain in submission to Christ, we can win others to Christ also. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's exactly right. All right, other thoughts on the teaching or instruction or commands here to wives in verses one to six, things that you notice, things that stand out to you about uh, how, Jessica. Yes, sorry. Um, I had to step out for a second, so I'm sorry if I repeat anybody, somebody else's comment. Um, so one thing that kind of stands out to me and kind I had like a aha moment whenever I was pregnant with my son um, of like worthiness. So as wives, you are to submit yourselves to your spouse, um, but being somebody who is worthy of submission. So when it's all, when it talks about you know leading off where the wife is supposed to obey the husband, of course, hopefully you have a husband who is who shows himself worthy um, and and that they're following Christ. Um, and then as a parent, kind of like we're talking about, I think maybe in alluding to that in verse five about. Um, where you, or verse six, sorry, where we're, we become her children um, if we kind of follow her example um, and just like how she had that faith, um, put her faith in Abram um, as her husband to submit to him. Um, so if we show ourselves willing to submit to someone whether or not they deserve it, our children kind of pick up on that and emulate that. Um, and kind of like, you know, the same thing that Christ did for us you know, the, the worldly authorities had no, they, they were not justified in what they were doing, but still he humbled himself and he submitted to them regardless of whether or not they were right. Um, and just, he set that example for us and we just try to do that same thing for our children. And even if we have an unbelieving husband, um, that can work the other way too. So if we submit to that unbelieving husband, um, it shows an example like, whoa, this person is actually submitting to someone who is not godly. Um, that kind of speaks volumes to um, your character as a Christian. Yeah, I think that's right on. I think that's right on. Um, let me just say this here, because uh, a lot of you have said, stated what I think is Peter's intent here um, when he's writing this, that, he, that, that probably he's writing specifically because there were, there were wives who were married to people who were not Christians or not faithful uh, servants of God. But let me just say this too, that sometimes wives who marry even a Christian may still end up fi finding out that they're married to a husband who is disobedient to the word. 
Um, and when he says here, uh, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest here. Um, there have been times in life where uh, I would like to say I'm a Christian, and yet, and yet I've been disobedient to the word, and it's through my wife's holy and godly conduct that I end up being won back to the Lord or turned back to the Lord or led to repentance by the right conduct that she has. Um, and so I think that's important to, uh, to, re to remember here as we discuss this. Uh, you don't have to have a non-Christian spouse to, to, feel, to feel the need to apply this or to, uh, to live this out. Uh, Denise, what, were you going to share something? Yeah, um, I guess uh, looking back at um, chapter two towards the end, uh, I think God is showing the beauty that he's uh, given us women in submission. Because if we look at what the opposite of um, submission is, um, with uh, if Jesus were to revile, how does that look? Or if Jesus were to uh, retaliate, how would that look? Would that win, cry, win, uh, win us over to him? So I think that's just the beauty of how God designed, you know, men being the head and the head of every man is Christ, that as we submit to our husbands, we are in fact submitting to Christ um, to show that beauty of that submission. Amen. Amen. And by the way, a lot of these instructions, um, while they may have direct, more specific and direct application to wives, the, this teaching, I think, is relevant for husbands and wives. And think about one of the principles that Peter's teaching us here. Your goal in marriage is to win your spouse over, but not to win your spouse over to yourself primarily, but to win your spouse over to the Lord. So every action, every, every choice that's made, every word that's spoken is meant to win your spouse over to the Lord. Tying this in with what Jessica shared and some of you uh, other sisters have shared here too, I just want to remind us here, one of the things by implication that this text is teaching us is that the purpose of marriage as God designed it is not happiness, but is holiness. Think about this. The purpose of marriage as God designed it is not your personal happiness, but mutual holiness. Um, and, and, and in this text, notice there's no, there's no conversation at all about the focus being on the wife or the husband being happy. The focus is on the wife being holy and by implication, helping her husband also to become holy. If you read Ephesians 5, by the way, there's more instructions there to men than to women in the relationship, more instructions there to the husband than to wives. If you read just 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, you might think, well, all the hard work is there for the wives. If you read Ephesians 5, you probably think the opposite, all the hard work is for the husbands. But think about this. This is why at weddings, people talk about this being holy matrimony. Because when you get married, you are setting yourself, you're setting yourselves together apart for each other alone. And just as the, the goal of Christ's love for the church was not simply to forgive us, but to remove every spot and wrinkle and to make us holy and blameless so that he could present the church in all their glory. Remember that from Ephesians 5, Paul says, 
So also marriage is about helping each other become holy and blameless for God. And those of you who are married can testify to this. You don't have to be married very long at all before you realize that marriage is going to reveal a lot of spots and blemishes, both on your character and also on your spouse's character. Um, that happens pretty quickly. Uh, when I got married, I, I, was, uh, I was not only um, given, privy, uh, you know, given the privilege of coming to know some of the flaws and weaknesses of Lindsay, far more I came to see the flaws and weaknesses and sins of me. Uh, that were going on within me. And so marriage will reveal that, um, reveal those spots and blemishes in your character so that through the power of Christ and through the help of each other, uh, we can remove them and become gloriously prepared for God. So thinking about that, I think it's really important. Ha happiness is a, simply a byproduct that will come from following God's pattern in marriage. Um, and if I understand that, then it will, it will help me not to panic when at times in my marriage I'm unhappy. Um, I can realize, hey, the purpose of this is not about happiness. It's about refining my character. It's, sometimes marriage is one of the trials that we're going through that's refining me and changing me and helping me to become more holy and righteous and prepared for the Lord. Um, I think, Mike and Candace, you had something. Yeah, I have a question, Caleb, about... Um chapter 3 verse 4 right where it says rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of the lord and i know um for a lot of people that scripture is usually taken to kind of mean well the wife got to be very docile she can't be like a a person who's loud and stuff like that but i guess my question is pretty much given that the first part of this four says rather let it be the hidden person of the heart where he was focusing on pretty much the wife's heart. Does that, what does that gentle and quiet mean? Does it mean physically quiet? Like, <laughs> you know, or is it more of a spiritual thing? Great question. Uh, I would like to hear from the sisters first before I weigh in on that. Um, any sisters want to jump in and uh, give your thoughts to Candace's good question there about the gentle and quiet spirit um, God calls. Does that mean, and if I'm understanding your question right, Candace, essentially, does that mean a woman, a woman cannot be loud? Is that, is that what you're asking? Well, I mean, naturally, I think people, sometimes people's personalities are influenced maybe by culture, right? Like I would say some, I, I can make a general statement here that like, for example, African women and Caribbean women and maybe different women tend to be like um, very, maybe, maybe loud at times, very outspoken. So I, I kind of want to know, okay, is this speaking about when it says gentle and quiet, are we all supposed to kind of get to this point where we're kind of like docile or is it, is it more of a spiritual gentle and quietness? That's, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of my question. Yeah, I think it does make sense. I'm still waiting on some of the other sisters here, though, to weigh in. Denise is going to answer the question, though. Thank you for your courage, Denise. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry for the noise. Um, I think it's more like an inner uh, gentle and quiet uh, because there's a lot of things you can say, but it's how you say it, right? So um, I can 
disagree with someone um, and be outspoken about it. But if I say it with pride and attitude and sometimes without prayer, it comes across very, um, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. All right. Sorry. It could come across like um, very contentious. And I think what the scripture is uh, talking about with the gentle and quiet spirit is just the, the mannerism in which as a woman or a wife, how we carry ourselves. So if I'm not constantly trying to fight my husband or retaliate against something that he did or said, um, just that inner beauty, but it doesn't mean that I don't speak to him about an issue that I have with him, if right. that's the case. So I think it's just the way in which we do it versus what, you know, what needs to be said. Good, good. Uh, Jessica. Yes. So I, I think that verse reminds me of um, like Titus 1, 7 um, and 8, where um, Paul's talking about the qualities of a elder. Um, so I think, you know, society kind of like traditionally places like quieter roles, like, oh, women are supposed to be quiet and just like hide in a corner or whatever, you know, whatever society you're talking about. But I think where you, when you put it in light of Titus and how elders are supposed to behave, um, it's not talking about being so, you know, hidden and like just so, you know, overly docile, um, but rather um, like Denise was saying, like your, your temperament. So it's talking about, you know, with overseer, not quick tempered, um, not pugnacious, hospitable, sensible, um, self-controlled. And I think those are the same qualities just basically speaking to for women um, in that sense. Good, good. Uh, Sister Joy. Yeah, I agree with what was just said. I think it has to do with, as Christ is our example, we see the gentleness and the humility in him. That's but right. there was nothing docile about Christ. That's but right. he still had this gentleness, this humility where he was willing to obey his father. And sometimes we are called upon to, to do something that God wants us to do. And we obey him, and that shows our humility and our gentleness, and we act with love and kindness, but not exactly, I wouldn't say docile, you know, but I would say being, being gentle, being obedient, being Christ-like, that's the whole point of the matter, because he's our example, and we follow in his path, because our objective, like you say, is to help each other get to heaven, and so... In doing so, there are times I will have to surrender and let him be the leader because that's what God calls me to do, to submit to him and let him be the leader. But if he's going wrong, if he's doing something that's against God's will, it doesn't mean that I will just humbly go with him. I have to say, no, this is not where we go. You know, we go according to what Christ wants us to do. Yep. Good, good. Um, Ruth. Um, kind of also see some, uh, I see so many things, every, I agree with everything that everybody said, but uh, there's another aspect that I see in terms of what wives are to be busy about. There's a, there's a tendency, I don't think it's actually saying not to kind of look nice, um, but also not putting too much 
stock in that and your appearance. Um, if it's if the gospel is about if we're pointing this to Christ, um, it's not something that's superficial. It's not something that um, has anything to do with um, how we look on the outside. Because it's kind of sounding like things that that comes out of the uh, out of James for me in terms of you know a lot of stuff. But but I I guess for like if we are to be precious beings. Um, it's actually something that maybe the world may not see that's precious, which is definitely in how the world views marriage. Right. And notice it's precious to God. That ought to remind us of uh, what Peter already said in chapter two, that even though to the world we, we are like exiles and strangers, we are precious and choice and elect to God. We are elect exiles. So this is how to be precious in God's sight. Um, so I love the connection, Joy, you made with Jesus. Um, and going back to Candace, kind of answering your own question, um, most of the qualities that you see here in, uh, in, that are called, wives are called to exhibit are qualities that are exhibited by Jesus' life. Jesus is used... Um, is described as meek and lowly in heart. That's the word here that's translated gentle. Same word for meekness. So the idea of meekness is not weakness. It's the idea of strength with self-control, a willingness to, uh, I, I like to uh, explain it with, um, by describing like, uh, you've seen some of these huge dogs that uh, just could just rip someone, a small human limb from limb. But they're very gentle and they're very uh, careful in how they treat people uh, and how they treat other, other um, animals or other humans that are much smaller than they are. That's the idea here of, of strength under control. Uh, and that, that, uh, that word uh, of quietness is also trans, translated sometimes with the idea of peace peacefulness, the idea of being calm. That is, and I think the idea is here, if you put all this together, Notice the picture that he's pointing here. The emphasis is not primarily on anything external. That is, a, a godly woman doesn't need to draw attention to self. A godly woman doesn't need everybody to be looking at her. So she's not always trying to dress in a way or present her hair in a way or, 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 or look in a certain way that's, that's drawing attention to self. Her goal is not to draw attention to self, but to draw attention to God. And so she conducts herself, she dresses in such a way um, that, that what she's doing is presenting a spirit that points people not to her, but to God himself. Uh, to the point that Ruth was making here, this construct I've given you in the, in the uh, worksheet that we sent out, there's, I gave you a question about this, uh, the not but construct that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. Jesus uses that same construct in, um, in John 6 when he says in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, does Jesus mean there that, that you should never do any work for any food that's going to spoil? Well, no, clearly he didn't mean that because later on he would instruct his apostles to write that if, uh, if a person doesn't work, he should not eat, right? Um, so clearly Jesus wants us to work for food that spoils, but it's an, it's an emphasis on the primary focus should not be on food that spoils, but food that will lead you to endure to eternal life. 
the same thing here. I don't think it means here that a woman should never look nice, that she should never, that she should uh, try to look as ugly as possible at all times. I don't think that's the picture here. The idea is here, the focus is not on external appearance, but the focus is on the heart. Because remember what, what the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't look like man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to catch God's attention by my makeup or by my hairstyle or by my really fashionable clothing. If my goal is to catch God's attention, then my focus is going to be on that inner heart becoming the same kind of person, the same kind of character that I see in my Lord Jesus Christ. All right, good. Other thoughts on uh, the role of women here? Candace, yeah, jump back in. Or Mike. Sorry, I have a follow-up to my, my sure. question. I was reading Ben's comment here. I like the point that he's making. I guess it comes down to me about being a little bit maybe just confused in general with this, like I said, with the quality of quietness that Ben says here, God exalts the quality of quietness. Is that physical or spiritual? And again, because, okay, we see Jesus, right? And sometimes when I look at the life of Jesus and some of what he told the Pharisees, I'm, I'm like, man, he was blocked. Like, <laughs> you know, um, he called them out. And even if you, if you think about um, just during his, his experience, on the cross and right before it, you know, he told Pilate point blank, like, look, listen, you, um, the ones who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. And like, you know, he and Pilate had this kind of back and forth. So, it's, you know, it's not like if Jesus was, was kind of like, like we use the word docile, it doesn't always come across like he was. So then that, I guess that's where maybe I have some confusion in my head. I'm like, okay, I don't know. That's, that's kind of, that's where my, some of my confusion comes in. And I think that's where your answer is to your question though, too, <laughs> in, in that you as a sister and as a wife need to be looking to embody the character and the qualities of Jesus in every way. So okay. be quiet in the ways that Jesus was quiet. Um, be bold and blunt in the ways that Jesus was bold and blunt. Try in every way to, to, to imitate his character and in so doing, um, in so doing, you'll be pleasing to him. I think that's helpful too. One of the things that's helpful about this is, uh, is Jesus is the example both for wives and husbands. You think about for wives, Jesus serves as the example of submissiveness. Think about how Jesus submitted to not only unjust rulers in this world, but how he submitted to God the Father. He realized that God the Father was put in a position of authority over him and was completely submissive in that. Uh, and, and in the same way, Jesus is the head of the church and the head of man. So man, a husband then is looking to Jesus and learning how to, uh, ex how to exercise authority. That is how to serve or how to love. And you think about this, the man in the, it, I mean, this is implied in first Peter three, the man is taking the position of authority in the marriage relationship, but it's a totally different kind of authority than the world does. Um, you remember what Jesus said to his disciples. It, this kingdom is not like the world's where you're going to go about exercising authority or lording it over them. No, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, that comes through becoming a servant. And think about how Jesus won us as the church to him. It wasn't through forcing us. It wasn't through telling us, you better submit. It was actually through laying down his life for us on a cross. And so Ephesians 5, again, teaches us 
how to uh, how to live that out as husbands in a way that wins our spice. Think about this, our spouse to the Lord. Think about um, this too. Sometimes husbands, you're going to be in positions where your wife is disobedient to the word, where you're where where um, you may have a wife who turns away from the word. Um, well. So what do you do in that situation? Well, it's not going to help if you try to play the role of uh, enforcer of the rules of God. It's not going to help if you try to force her into submission or you try to, um, you know, coerce her into submitting to you. That's not what's going to, that, that's not how you're going to help her. The way you'll help her, if you want to help your wife learn to be submissive, here's how you do it. You look at everything that Jesus does for the church and you do it for your wife every day. You love her, you give yourself up for her, you nourish her, you cherish her, and every day you lay down your life for her. And by loving her the way that Christ has loved you, you will help her to fulfill her calling in Christ as well. All right, let me pause there. What else do you guys want to say about uh, the role of, wife, uh, of the wife here in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6? What have we missed or, or not talked about here um, that needs to be emphasized? Um, I just wanted to say, I feel like we started off on the abuse topic and then kind of uh, veered away from that. Right, bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. So let's come back to it now. <laughs> All right. So um, let me just say this first. Wives are instructed to love their husbands. The Bible word for love, there's many different words for love, but the Bible word used for love there is the word agape. The word agape means um, just this is a simple definition of a complex word, but the way I like to think about agape love is love chooses to do what is best for the ones we love. All right. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus didn't always do what people wanted for the, uh, for them. Jesus often did what was best for the ones that he loved because of his love for them. So think about this as a, uh, think about this as a sister um, who's in a difficult marriage where the husband is abusive. Um, I would argue that it is not loving for me if my husband is abusive and I'm in a marriage, uh, if my spouse is abusive, and this could work either way, but more, more likely, obviously, to be a husband abusive of a wife. Um, it, and if I'm in a marriage and my spouse is abusive, I would argue that it's not loving for me to uh, encourage them to continue being abusive. Um, I would argue it's not, it's not loving for, uh, for me to uh, allow them to continue to be abusive. Uh, in fact, the most loving thing to do would be to get them help. Sometimes that would be, if they're a Christian, that would be calling the church in to address the issue, uh, particularly calling leadership who could deal with the issue in a safe way um, and, and, and address the issue in a safe way where the wife and the children are protected. Uh, sometimes that may involve calling the authorities in to a deal, to deal with the issue. I mean, God has given us authorities for this purpose to address this issue and, and, and to deal with those who disobey the laws. Uh, and I think a, a submissive wife who loves her husband, if her husband is continuing to be abusive, it may be something where she has to involve law enforcement in order to, in order to love him, not out of hatred, not out of vengeance, not out of a desire to punish him or just to get him destroyed, but out of love for him, to, to wake him up and to help him to see that he needs to repent. 
and to turn back to God. Uh, so I do not see First uh, Peter chapter three as in any way um, condoning or encouraging women to uh, to tolerate or allow or even encourage uh, their husbands to abuse them. Uh, and actually, I would argue that the other option here, uh, when that's going on, is uh, is to seek refuge outside of the home. Um, and I've actually heard of and known about uh, sisters, actually Lindsay's parents for a while, um, took in uh, a wife in their church and her, and her uh, children into their home um, to give the husband time to get help and, and uh, turn back to the Lord and be faithful to the Lord. Uh, and then eventually they were reconciled, the wife to her husband again, after he got the help that he needed um, to turn his life around. Uh, so I don't see anything here in First Peter 3 that would encourage a woman to, uh, to allow or to tolerate or to encourage abuse. Um, but maybe, maybe you guys uh, have a different opinion on that or a different thought. Um, if you'd like to jump in here now, uh, feel free to share. Cool. All right. Um, I'll just say one more thing about the sisters here that stood out to me. This is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Um, you know, in order to live like this, you have to have a hope in God. Remember, in order for Jesus to endure the cross, he had to entrust himself to the faithful creator, to his father, who, who he knew would judge righteously. And I'll just say the same is true. If we're going to live this way, and I don't care whether you have a godly husband or an ungodly husband. Wives, if you're going to live this way, it will only come out of a heart that is putting her hope in God himself uh, and trusting in God himself. That's the only motive. Truthfully, even if you have a godly husband, he is not always going to act in a godly way. And there'll be times where he disappoints you and it'll be hard to submit to him and it'll be hard to love him and it'll be hard to respect him. And in those moments, it won't be your husband's character that motivates you to be submissive. It'll be that your hope is not in him, but in God. All right. Anything else about wives before we turn to husbands here? Uh, Caleb, I have a question. Yeah, Melissa. Um, yeah, these are all great points, but is there anything that an unmarried woman should take from this discussion? I think so. Uh, I, I actually w was meant to say this, and I'm glad you reminded me of it. Um, to those of you who are not yet married, if the person you're interested in marrying does not know how to be submissive, then don't marry them. And I'm not just speaking to wives there or just to husbands. I'm speaking to both. If the person you're interested in marrying has not learned subjection, then don't marry them. Because wives, think for example, if you marry a husband who does not subject themselves to God, then what could, what could he end up doing to you in your marriage? You are, in for, you are likely in for a miserable uh, marriage. Every Christian is called to learn subjection. We are all to be subject to Christ first. And then we're also called to be subject to authorities and to be uh, subject in the workplace to those who are over us and, and now wives in, in marriage as well. So every Christian uh, is called to be subject in some way. And if you haven't, if, if the person you're interested in marrying has not learned to be, to be subject, then they're not fit to be married. Uh, and I'll say sisters, if, uh, if he may be handsome and manly, but if he hasn't learned to be subject to Christ, and to lay down his life for others, then, he, then he's probably not the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. 
And likewise, uh, brothers, she may be stunningly beautiful, but if she can't submit herself to the Lord or to others for the Lord's sake, then don't expect to have a uh, fun and exciting marriage. You're, you will soon be in for a difficult marriage uh, if you choose to, to be married. That's one thought I have, um, Melissa, uh, related to your question. I would also argue that these instructions about the heart and the kind of character that God is seeking for in a wife would also be true for a single sister as well. Uh, that, that focus on the inner beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, a, hum, uh, a, a meek and, uh, and, and peaceful or calm spirit. Those are, the, those are the things that God is seeking from all women and also from men too. Ben, go ahead. I was to say, Caleb, and I may have lost it in, uh, in some of the noise on this side, but um, what you were saying I think is dead on. I need to be looking at somebody that I'm thinking about marrying needs to have these qualities in themselves. Also, this is setting a standard that if I ever intend to be married, I need to be pursuing those qualities before I get married. Because you don't get married and then magically become all these things, being an understanding husband. Well, you need to practice being an understanding man without being married so that when you're married to your wife, perhaps you'll be better at being understanding. Or for the wives, if I'm not someone who's willing to subject myself to my friends when we're hanging out or coworkers or whatever, what makes me think I'm going to subject myself to my husband? So it is something I think you're exactly right. We should look at in the person we're considering could may one day consider being married, but also it's something we should be uh, striving for. And like you said, even if I never get married, then, okay, great. I've got godly qualities that God finds precious. So it's a win no matter what, whether I'm married or not. Amen. In fact, it's probably worth bears repeating. These qualities are not exactly precious to the world that we live in. They're not exactly precious in, in our culture, to many people in our culture. But remember, we said at the beginning here, Peter called us to be exiles, to be strangers, to be not like the world. We're called to be different than the world. Therefore, um, what our focus is, is not on be, having the qualities and the characteristics that are precious to the people of this world, or to the culture of this world. Our aim and our focus is to have the kind of qualities and characteristics um, that are precious in the sight of God. Uh, Brian, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, similar to what Ben, and also kind of responding to Melissa, is that we, um, you know, above all, we, we all have to be submissive to, to Christ, to God. We have to be submitting our lives so we have to be showing, you know, I have to be showing Ben or you know, Ben has to be showing you. We have to be showing each other that we're submissive um, so that when Melissa or anyone is looking for someone, um, they have to know that they're submitting to God. You know, and all of us should be submitting to God regardless of if we're looking for a spouse because that's we need we want to be accepted by God in the end. We're not looking to be uh, just accepted by a spouse and I'm not saying that's what most is saying at all. Um, I'm just saying like, we all have to be, make sure that we're thinking about submitting to God, number one. And then we might not even run into those problems if we're all doing that. Um, then it's just a matter of uh, who might be suitable for one another. And uh, the, the other point I was uh, uh, thinking about before she uh, asked that question was that um, I think you're going there, but I think the idea of uh, the quietness, um, absolutely also applies to men we're not supposed to be noisy uh loud um loud in spirit prideful uh we have to i guess as have a uh, family make certain decisions 
but still we're not supposed to be these argumentative noisy people in spirit or in real life so uh, we have to really uh, submit to these same qualities it's just that um, ultimately our submission is to God um, you know as well yeah that's right that's exactly right all right, let's turn to husbands here. I'm sorry we went a little over today, but I want to spend about five, ten minutes more uh, talking about the role of husbands. We've given a lot of emphasis to wives here, and that's because Peter gives a lot of emphasis to wives. Um, but what do you see about the, the instructions for husbands? And Tony, you've been waiting a while, so uh, <laughs> jump in here. What do you see in verse 7 that's helpful for you as a husband? Um, we always uh, we laugh about this because we, we tend to beat the, the what the wives need to do to, into the ground as a church and, and kind of skip over the husbands. Um, but I, I would say there's a lot of meat to, to digest here in, in verse seven about what as a husband myself, you know, my responsibility to my wife and to God, um, to my family here. You know, and I, and I think at some point, I think Candace brought early on about the world's point of view is when a woman submits herself to her husband, it's kind of like an inferior, superior thing. Um, but the first thing we have to keep in mind is that they're co-heirs with us. Um, their reward is the same as our reward. Their goal is the same goal as our goal. Um, and our head is Christ, you know. For the time being, yes, as, as a family, I'm the head of the family, as Christ is my head. But ultimately, Christ is our head. Um, so there, it's not necessarily like a, an inferiority or superiority thing as much as it's just God's instructions for how to maintain a healthy marriage, you know, and he, he kind of gives a hint to it. So at the end of that verse says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, I just know going through all these steps, the last 12 years of marriage now, almost 12 years in February, um, you know, a bad marriage and, and strife in your marriage can really, really hinder your prayers and your walk as a Christian, it could really take your focus off of everything that's important. And not to say that I think Denise and I have a bad marriage. I think we have a, a great marriage and she's listening right now. So hopefully she doesn't, you know, blow me up or we may need some counseling after this. Uh, <laughs> you know, but th there's a very important thing here is, is for us as husbands to live with our wives in an understanding way. Um, you know, and, and I think I, I spoke with this to you when we were walking in, in Prospect Park. Um, Caleb about when I go to make a decision about something I really need to involve her in in those decision making processes I need to know where she's coming from what she's feeling how's how is it going to affect her um, you know because ultimately yes I can make a decision and she's going to submit to it she chooses to submit to it but if I make poor decisions all the time it's going to affect her mood her attitude it's going to affect her walk with Christ. It's going to affect, it really just it cascades and it, it snowballs into a big mess. So, you know, like you, you already gave the example of Christ. He showed the example of how to lead by serving his disciples. You know, he served everywhere he went. He went he cared for people and he showed compassion. And he did the work of a servant as the leader, as the head of our church. You know, and we really need to consider those things as we are leading our wives or leading our families um, and running our household. You know, it, I, I've always said that I want to be the kind of husband that is a pleasure for my wife to submit to. I don't want to be a terror or a wrath. You know, you know, as I don't know who I spoke with. I, I confess about uh, my childhood growing up. My stepfather was very abusive. 
you know, and whenever he would come home, I remember it was like the feeling of just like a storm cloud coming in on the house. It just got dark, got quiet. Everybody went to their private areas and everybody's just hope he doesn't come in my way, you know, and given the instructions that were given in the church from God, you know, for wives to submit to our husbands, you could very easily bring that into your own household and become that storm cloud. And so, you know, it's always my prayer and it's always my goal to include my wife and to be considerate of her feelings and her, her opinions and her points of view. Um, as I make these decisions, as we go forward, you know, we, we make sure we do this together. Good thoughts. Good thoughts. To your point, Tony, um, the, the phrase here, I think is literally husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Um, and, uh, and I think that is, uh, is, 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 is helpful thought there to, uh, to think about. I don't know exactly all the knowledge that he's referring to there, but I would assume that it would include um, that any kind of knowledge that's going to be beneficial to the husband and wife relationship, including what the knowledge of what my wife's needs are and what her desires are and, and what encourages her and what builds her up and what, what, what needs to happen in order for her to be nourished and her to be cherished and her to be, um, uh, love, feel loved and appreciated within the marriage. Um, and you think about that again, the way we learn to, uh, to love our wives is, is by looking at the way Christ has loved us. And if we can see, if we can see that and imitate that, uh, that kind of husband is not somebody who's going to be difficult for, uh, for a wife to, uh, to be subject to. As husbands, it ought to be our aim that we treat our wives in such a way that, that their role is not challenging at all. Um, because, the, because we, we look so much like Jesus uh, that they're able to, uh, to, to, to um, freely, uh, that, that they're encouraged by us and strengthened by us to live like Christ has called them to live as well. All right, good. Other thoughts on this idea of, uh, of husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge? Sister Parker? Yes, um, I'm going back to where you said Titus, um, where it tells the older women to teach the younger women yeah, yeah. how to be submissive. It's very important because I remember at Brooklyn, our classes, it teaches them about dating and to look for the character you want in a husband. Because if you have to be submissive to someone that's just doing any old kind of thing because they take submissive in the wrong way, then once you marry them, you're subjected to whatever it is they're doing with you. And then also we had a Timothy class so that they can teach men to be like Christ so that they'll be nice to their wives and that their wives won't you know, um, mind being submissive to them. So it's important for us that are not married to look, you know, look really hard at before you get married into what you're getting married to. That's right. That's right. Uh, by the way, just one quick note here on the uh, weaker vessel idea, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Uh, I love the point you made there, Tony, about uh, the equality that he's emphasizing there. Women are co-heirs. They are e they have an equal standing in the community, in the kingdom, and the community of God. That is, men are not considered in any way superior to women in the kingdom of God. They are have an equal standing. They are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. 
Um, and yet he calls them women as a weaker vessel. And I think the idea here, I don't think the idea here uh, that he's trying to stress is that women are like weaker physically or maybe like spiritually or emotionally. I, I don't think that's his point. I think his point is that the wife is willingly choosing for the sake of Christ to take the weaker position. That is to choose to place herself under the authority of her husband. Therefore, if she's going to choose to take that weaker position, then we need to be very careful as husbands in how we treat her to make sure that she is encouraged and that she's strengthened and that she's built up in the Lord, to make sure that she is, uh, is nourished and cherished and, and loved in every way so that, uh, so, that she, so that she will grow closer to God, even as we do as well. Um, all right, we need to wrap up here. Uh, any final thoughts, comments before we uh, finish today? I know there's a lot that we haven't covered. Oh, Ruth, to your question, I meant to say, um, so that your prayers may not be hindered, meaning in, in, ineffective, unanswered, or that the husband not considering his wife will cause him not to pray. Uh, from my experience, I'd say maybe all of the above uh, there, um, but I'm not sure uh, the exact answer to your question. Maybe somebody else has the answer. Uh, Brian, you had something you want to share? Yeah, I would just say, I think that's why we, we just um, ended with that the emphasis is really on the word honor, honoring the wife, because she if she's choosing to take that, she's not uh she's not weaker at all but if she's choosing to take that you know weaker quote-unquote position um then you have to honor that because you know that'd be like you choosing to do the same thing to her if you were going to take the submit to her you would want her to honor the fact that you're choosing to take that position yeah that's exactly right exactly right tony yeah yeah just i guess I don't want to answer that question with my life, but I, I kind of have to like to apply what I've learned. Um, when my wife is unhappy, I have a very hard time focusing. Um, and I have a bit like, I can't move on until I, I, I kind of understand, especially if it's something that, because I did, I think that's where the hindrance comes in. Like, it's just, you become so distracted. Um, I mean, I guess, like I said, not every husband is the same way. Like some, some husbands that I work with that are not Christians, obviously they can hurt their wife and then like not bat an eye. But I think overall when, you know, if you have some kind of conscience or some kind of care in your heart, when something's not right in the house, there is a big distraction that goes on there. And I, I maybe that might be the hindrance in the prayers. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Good. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being on here a little longer tonight. Sorry, we went a little over our time. Uh, but I want to leave you with these couple of questions, and then we'll pray. Um, I, I want you to think about each of you, whether you're single or whether you're married. I want you to think about how is my conduct in public, in private, in the home, in the workplace, how is my conduct affecting the credibility of the message that I'm proclaiming concerning God's excellence? Hopefully all of us as the people of God are proclaiming God's excellence every day in our homes, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in public. Hopefully we're proclaiming God's excellence every day. But how is our conduct affecting the credibility of that message? And whenever I'm struggling with this, whether it's at home or whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in public, 
I need to go back to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, and think about what the Lord has suffered for me. And when I see how much he suffered for my sake to bring about my salvation, to bring about my transformation, how can I not but willingly subject myself in return for him so that I can bring glory to his name? There may be reviling that comes with that. There may be mistreatment that comes with that. There may be hard things that I experience because of that. Um, yet nonetheless, that's how when people see my good works, they'll come to glorify God through me imitating sacrificial and, and, and subject, subject life of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to make an impact on the world. That's how, we, that's how we make an impact in our neighborhood, in our home, and in our workplace. It's not just through preaching the gospel. It's through living the gospel and following in the footsteps of our Savior. Thanks so much, guys. Let's finish with a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you for the things that you've taught us. Thank you for the things that you've reminded us of. Lord, these are difficult teachings, but help us, Lord, to submit to them, to submit to you with all of our heart, to do what you have commanded us to do, that we may bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, help us to put our trust in you. You've given us every reason to trust you. And even when we come to hard texts that don't always make sense to us or we don't always fully understand, Lord, you have shown yourself to be trustworthy. You have shown that there's nothing you will ask us to do that you haven't already done yourself. And we thank you for the example of Christ, for Christ's willingness to lay down his life for us. Help us also, Lord, to lay down our, our lives for our wives, for our husbands, for our children, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, and for the people around us. Lord, help us to follow in his footsteps. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks everybody so much. I know there's a lot of questions we haven't answered uh, from this discussion, so I hope it will provoke more conversation throughout the week. And uh, feel free, of course, always to reach out to me or anybody else in the class to discuss these things further. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.